sweet hour of prayer. Oh, friends, I wonder if the truth of what we have just sung um, became a reality for you. And especially to realize that whenever we gather, whether as a corporate body or individually or in small groups to pray, this is going to be one of the activities that will cease when we're going to be in heaven with the Lord. There will be no more need for prayer. There's something special about the opportunities we get here on earth as we await for the return of His Son to come. So think about the time of prayer, not just as a duty, not just as a, as a point to check off on your daily routine, but think about the times of prayer as a sweet hour of prayer. And with that in mind, friends, let's open Scripture to the book of James. Book of James, chapter 5, we'll be reading from verse 13 to 18, even though I'll be focusing this morning on verse 14 and uh, 15, really more on 14 though, but let's read the whole context to help us realize what James is teaching the church to, to do and how to think about uh, living life together as we await for the coming of His Son. James, chapter 5. Uh, I'll be reading from verse 13 to 18. If you did not bring a Bible with you this morning, uh, we would encourage you to find a Bible provided in the chairs in front of you. You may find this passage in our Pew Bibles on page number 1013. If you don't own an ESV Bible, we would love for you to grab the Pew Bible and take it home with you. We'd love for you to have it, We'd love for you to read it, and we hope they will be useful uh, for your seeking of God and uh, drawing closer to Him. Here's the word of the Lord for us this morning. James chapter 5, verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone among you cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is any among, anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us. Would you pray with me? Father, we are privileged to stand before your throne in your presence, hearing your word. Father, would you speak to our hearts this morning through, through the text that we have read? And with the proclamation of your word, would it be true and faithful and effective in our hearts? We pray this so that the name of Christ would be exalted in our lives, both individually but also as a church. We pray this in the name of Christ for his glory and honor. Amen. Amen. Well, in verse 13 of this passage, James addresses 
two different experiences. Some might think of these experiences as being opposite experiences. The experience of going through difficulties, sufferings, and not just physical suffering, but all kinds of suffering, any kind of difficulty. Is anyone among you going through difficulties? On the other side, he's going to say, is anyone among you cheerful? And last week, we looked particularly at verse 13 and the way James encourages believers of either of those experiences or any in between how to respond. And the response is, is any among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone among you cheerful? Let him sing praises. In, in verse 14, James addresses a subset of the various difficulties we might experience. And the subset of difficulties is physical sickness. Sickness. Is anyone among you sick? The theme of sickness is developed all the way to verse 16 in our passage, where James says, and pray for one another so that you might be healed. There are many, there are many things in this passage that seem very practical. And yet, even though they seem very practical, they're notoriously difficult to interpret and to really understand how we're supposed to put these things into practice. Um, I will speak about some of the difficulties in the second half of the sermon and next week. There are so many difficulties I was not able to pack it all in one sermon that you would be able to listen in one sitting. Um, I would be able to put it in one sermon, but I'm not sure you would be able to listen in one sitting. So I divided it for the sake of clarity and for the sake of helping you with the listening uh, into at least two parts. There might be three by the time we get to next week. But let's start, before we get to the difficult parts of this passage, let's start to, the, to two parts that are more easy to understand, very clear. Um, some clear assumptions that this passage brings to us. So if you're looking at your, um, at your bulletin and, and you got your pen going to take notes, we'll have three points. The first two will be easy to, to get or more clear. Uh, the third one will be a little more difficult and we'll spend more time on. Here's the first thing that we see from this passage about how the church should await for the coming of the Lord. As we gather together, as we, as we live the Christian life, how should we think about our life together as we go through difficulties. And here's the first point. Christians belong to local churches. Christians belong to local churches. It's interesting to observe that when James addresses Christians who are going through sickness, he encourages them not simply to engage in personal prayer, like he potentially did in verse 13, but he's also in verse 14, he's encouraging Christians to rely upon the church leadership to pray in a special way. Notice, whom should the sick person call? Verse 14, is any among, anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Friends, if you are sick, and if you are thinking about obeying this command, who would you call? 
Let me clarify the question a little further. Who are the elders that you would call? I know you might call your mom or dad. I know you might call um, some friends, perhaps some Christian friends. But this passage encourages us to call the elders of the church. Who are the elders of the church that you would call? Who are the elders of the church Then, when you would call them, they would know that you are under their care and watch and spiritual community, so they're responsible for you. Who are the elders that feel that calling and responsibility given from the Lord that you are one of those whom, they, whom the Lord has called to watch in a special and care way, in a careful way? In other words, it's not simply that we are to call other Christian friends. It's not simply that we're supposed to call our family members to pray for us. It's not simply that we're supposed to call our small group leader or home group leader. Or if you're a college student, it's not simply to say that you're supposed to call your campus ministry leader. The command is to call for the elders of the church. James envisions here that Christians belong to local churches where they would know who their elders are. And so that their elders could go and visit them for a special time of prayer with anointing with oil in the name of the Lord. Friends, do you see how this command makes it clear that a Christian is not an independent follower of Christ? James has no category for Christians who choose to stay uninvolved or unengaged or unconnected with a local church. The Christian is supposed to belong to a, a community of believers who actually gather regularly, who have spiritual leaders over them, and those spiritual leaders are called elders, pastors, overseers. Friends, we live in a day and age when an increasing number of Christians are satisfied to live their Christian lives without belonging to a local church and, without, and doing so for long periods of time. Now, I understand there are times when Christians might be looking to transition from one church to another, or if you have just moved to Austin and you're looking for a, for a church home, you're still in this limbo stage and not knowing where you belong yet. But there are Christians who would stay in this limbo stage for long periods of time, and they are okay with it, sadly. They're Christians who assume that belonging to a local church is an optional thing for a Christian. There are even some Christians whom I have this, and I hear it from, from some, not many, but occasionally. Um, people would say, oh, I'm a Christian, but I'm, I'm not part of organized religion. Well, friends, could you imagine if you're one of those kind of Christians and you're facing this command that James gives here in verse 14, how would you act on it? How would you live it out? James assumes that to be a Christian is to be connected and involved and actively participate and engaged in a local church that has spiritual leaders who serve as pastors, elders, or overseers. Dear Christian, if you don't know why church membership is important, Here is one practical answer. 
from this passage. Church membership helps you know who are your elders on whom you should call. Should you call just to anyone of any church or the, 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 the preacher on TV? Well, you can try to call him. I doubt you'll get to him. Will he know you? Will he know, will he be watching over your life to know what you're going through? Here's one practical reason why church membership is important. It helps you know who are the, the elders that you're supposed to call in various life stages and what you, when you're going through various difficulties. Um, it helps you know, um, it helps know the elders who are the members over whom they're supposed to watch and care for and be involved in their lives. And when they call for, for the elders to actually go and meet with, the, with these members and, and talk to them. College students, uh, if you're a Christian, and let me clarify that if. I mean, someone, if you're someone who hasn't, understands the gospel, under, understands the news of salvation that God has revealed for us, the news by which all those who repent of their sin and trust in Jesus for their salvation, all of those who respond to this gospel, to this, new, this good news of salvation, can be given eternal life. But there are some people who might have a head knowledge of what the gospel is. They may understand what it says. But it doesn't mean they have actually responded to the gospel through repentance and faith. A Christian is only that person who has actually responded to this truth of the gospel. Just because you know it doesn't mean that you are necessarily a Christian. If you have responded to this news of the gospel, you're a Christian. If you have not responded to the gospel message, you're not yet a Christian, even though you may know a lot of things about Christianity. Friends, if you have not responded to the gospel, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. I'd love to make sure that you understand it and know what God calls of us to do and how to respond to it. But if you are a Christian who actually responded to the gospel, realize that God wants you to be a part of a gathering of Christians and not just to attend even regularly here and there, not just to sort of show up, but to actually belong to a gathering of Christians. I encourage you to find a church, whether it's this one or another that preaches the gospel, I encourage you not just to be a faithful attender, but actually join that congregation, join that group of believers so that the spiritual leaders of that church would be your spiritual leaders so they would watch and care for you in a special way and so that you would know who are the people that God has placed over you to watch and care for you spiritually. Friends, if you have been attended, attending here for a while um, and you have um, repented of your sins and trusted in Christ, I encourage you, um, before you consider uh, making a commitment of membership, you may want to find out what a church believes about what it means to be a member. And at Parkless Baptist Church, one of the ways we serve you in this process is to offer a membership class that presents to those who participate in it how we understand the biblical meaning of belonging to one another. Um, and whether or not you choose to stay here, whether or not you sense the Lord leading you to become a member of this church, we encourage you to take this class uh, so that you understand the biblical teaching on church membership. Um, and if you'd like to know more about that, we are actually offering a class coming up at the end of October. There is a sign-up sheet in the foyer 
We'd love for you to take it, uh, take the class. Please sign up for it. There's even a small booklet that we give it to you free, and we ask you to read it. It's called "What Is a Healthy Church Member?" Because we want people before they would actually decide to join our congregation to understand what is the biblical meaning of belonging to one another as members. So I encourage you to consider signing up for the class uh, even after the service today. But bottom line is, dear friends, is the Bible speaks of Christians as belonging to one another in a covenant relationship. Promises we make to one another. We watch over one another. We care for one another. And in particular way, the elders of the church are responsible for special spiritual care for those who are members of the congregation. Now, I want to address the members of of our church. This passage seems to assume that any local church, regardless of size, should have a plurality of elders. If James assumed that each church, the norm was for each church to have just one elder, and the unusual thing would be for them to have multiple, he would have said, let him call the elder. But here in the passage, it says, anyone, anyone, anyone among you is sick? Let him call the elders of the church. The assumption is that every local church, regardless of its size or its budget, is supposed to have a plurality of elders. That's why in our church right now, as a congregation, we are considering the transition towards a plurality of elders. That's why the new constitution that we're presenting leads us in that direction. And I pray that the Lord would would help our congregation to understand this particular biblical principle. Also, I want to make sure that uh, we understand the why. Sometimes members will choose not to call their pastor um, when they're sick because they think, oh, the pastor is too busy. And that could be true if he's the only elder. But if there's a plurality of shepherds, some of whom might be vocational, employed, others who might be non-vocational, not employed by the church, and yet serving as a group of pastors together, the, the, the load of sharing the pastoral responsibilities will be better. And members will be cared for better if there's a plurality of shepherds and elders. Also, I want us to understand very clearly that the term elder and pastor are the same. The role is the same. So there's going to be no difference between, a, uh, the, if you will, the senior pastor or the preaching pastor and the other elders of the congregation. Biblically, they refer to the same role, and they together are supposed to care better for the congregation. And that's my prayer for the life of our congregation. So far, we point out to this truth that very clear expectation or assumption that is in this passage, James assumes every Christian, Christian life in every situation is a life connected to a local church. Christians belong to local churches with whose spiritual leaders a Christian must interact. Point number two that we see in, in this passage very clearly, Christians in sickness should call their elders. Christians in sickness should call their elders. Friends, our society has become so isolated and so independent that some Christians don't want to let others know about their sickness. Some people are so self-dependent, they don't want to depend upon others. They want to be very private about their lives. 
Some may feel that they don't want to bother others or the church. But friends, that's what the Bible tells us to do, that we should depend on one another. We should depend on each other and call one another and, and talk not only with the elders of the church, but also with one another. As a matter of fact, James says particularly two things in this passage. On one side, he is, go he is going to address um, those who are sick to, to call their spiritual leaders. Don't think they're too busy for you. Don't think they're too busy for you. That's why the God has granted them to the church, to care for the members. Friends, elders or pastors are not CEOs of the church. They're not there just to make decisions for the church. As a matter of fact, they don't make decisions for the church. Uh, but they're not there to even to just recommend decisions for the church. They're there to care for people, for the people of the church. That's what pastors are there for. Yes, they teach God's Word, and it's an important part of what they do. But through the teaching, through the time that they have, they are supposed to care for the people of the church. So when you say, oh, I don't want to bother the pastor, he's too busy, friends, realize you're actually acting against what the Bible tells you to do. Just when you're sick, call. You're supposed to depend upon others. And in particular, the leaders of the church are supposed to be involved in your life. And you're supposed to depend on that. When someone is sick or in the hospital, all of us should have a desire to go and visit or pray. Even, um, even, even, even help in, in some other ways. And we should do that in, at our own initiative. It's not just the job of the elders to visit the sick or to pray for them. You say, where do I see that in this passage? In verse 16. In verse 16, it says, pray for one another. That means it's not just a pastor praying for the sick people of the church. It's the all the one another. It's the members when we know about each other. Members of Park Hills Baptist Church, I want to speak to you. On one side, I want to commend you for the, for the way I've seen God's, God's grace and work in your lives in taking the initiative. When we find out that someone is sick among us, there are times when someone will beat me to the hospital. I praise God for that. Praise God when other members take the initiative to, to visit one another or to call one another or to send a greeting card. Another thing we do, and it's, it's a, a wonderful blessing, uh, our ladies have, do a great job of, of setting up a care calendar so that we coordinate our efforts to prepare meals for those who are sick. It's a wonderful blessing for those who are no longer able to, to, to cook for themselves and just be able to, to offer a, 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 a bowl of a fresh warm soup or a fresh homemade meal. I praise the Lord for seeing those acts of kindness and grace working among us as members. One of the ways we, we also encourage one another to pray for one another is we, we often make prayer requests known by way of email. If someone sends a prayer request, especially about sickness, but about anything else, we would know that by, by sending an email. On Sunday nights, the evening services on Sunday nights, uh, we devote a, a significant part of that evening service to praying for various needs in our congregation. I'm encouraged. Last Sunday night, we had 34 people in the, in the audience. Um, and I pray that more of our members will come on Sunday nights to pray for various needs in the life of our membership. By the way, tonight, we will not have an evening service. <laughs> um, and actually, for the next four weeks, we will not have this, the, the classic evening service. So, uh, so I'm just telling you, we'll actually take a break for about a month and resuming it 
in mid-October. Uh, but when we resume it, pray, look forward to be a part of our evening services so that we pray for one another. Uh, one of the other ways we encourage each other to pray for one another is by a little tool that we have devised and made available to our members. It's called the membership directory. It has all our members by name and, and their pictures, and we encourage members to keep this in their Bibles. And when you have your quiet time, when you're done with praying for your own needs, pull this directory out and start working through these names one by one alphabetically, page by page, and just pray for one another. Even if we're not in a crisis, just pray for one another. It's one way we encourage members of this church to, to pray for one another. But realize that that this responsibility to pray for one another, it's, it's a whole church's. And yet, there is a special thing that a sick person can ask for, specifically from the elders of the church. They may ask the church to pray, they may ask the members to pray, their family members to pray, but there's a special thing a sick person can do, and that is to call the elders of the church to come, pray over him or her, anoint him or her with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, members of Park Hills, we have not done this practice very much. Um, notice that it is the um, responsibility of the person who's sick to do it. And we'll talk a little bit more about what it means to anoint with oil. But you might say, so are you saying, Pastor, that we could start calling you from this point forward and ask you to come and pray over us and anoint us with oil in the name of the Lord and you will do it? And the answer is yes. I look forward when we'll have a plurality of elders so I won't do it alone. But I look forward to those calls. And you should not feel afraid that I'm too busy for that. But why should you do that? Why, what is it special about not just praying, but praying and anointing in the name of the Lord? And why is it that, the, that you should call the elders to do that? Why is it that this particular practice is given to the elders and not to the members of the church, not to the deacons of the church, but to the elders of the church? Well, let's look at the third point of the sermon this morning, the meaning of anointing with oil. The meaning of anointing with oil. So we look at two points. We look at the fact that Christians belong to churches. Um, we look at the second point, that Christians uh, in sickness should call their elders. Now let's look at the third point, the meaning of anointing with oil, and why is it that a sick person should call their elders for that. Uh, this practice of anointing with oil has been carried out in different ways in the history of the church. For instance, the Roman Catholic Church has understood this practice as uh, and has called it as the extreme unction. In a, uh, particularly, in, at least in decades past, um, this uh, action or this practice was carried out particularly for people who were sick and about to die. It was like the, almost like the last sacrament that the church would carry out um, for the sick person who was about to die um, and to make sure that their transition uh, into, into eternity was, was well. The only problem with that interpretation and that practice is that if we look at the passage, the reason why you should call the elders to anoint you with oil in the name of the Lord 
is not so much to prepare you for eternity in the sense of expecting to die, but so that you may be healed. We would do it actually with the expectation that the Lord could grant healing power over the person who is sick. Well, some of the reform in the, in the Reformation time, uh, the reformers understood this uh, efficacious, if you will, this powerful uh, practice, uh, and that somehow the Lord blessed that practice with, with the ability to heal sickness um, in, in a very effective way, so much so that re reformers said it was limited only to the apostolic age. That during the time of the apostles, um, this was practiced more often, and the Lord could, was actually using it to actually heal people. Uh, so there, many of the reformers, uh, in particular Calvin, uh, said that this practice was limited only to the first century church, the apostolic time. But friends, there's nothing in this passage that would seem to limit this practice only to the first age, or the first century age. So this leaves us with the conclusion that the practice of calling on elders uh, to come and pray over and anoint with oil in the name of the Lord is something that Christians can continue to practice. So what's the significance if we were to do it? Well, this is the, one of the big difficulties in this passage. The symbol order, what, what it means is very difficult to really nail down. So we want to be cautious, um, uh, not be careful abuses of, this in, of, of how this could be interpreted. They can be interpreted in some crazy ways. Um, but also there's a number of interpretations that are legitimate. We just don't know which of them would be really the case. So I'm going to say a few, few possible um, explanations of the symbolism of this, realizing that any of these might actually be the case. Uh, in biblical times, the anointing with oil was used for medical purposes. It's true that medical medicinal oils were used in ancient times. Some commentators think that uh, in James 5, the elders would carry with them some of these med medicinal oils. And uh, so that this practice would actually have some sort of medical uh, purpose. The only problem is the text doesn't tell us uh, that the oils that the elders would carry with them would be uh, medical oils. So it, it would really make us say more than the text is actually saying. Uh, plus, the idea of appealing to uh, your preacher to do the medical part is not exactly uh, what, we, uh, what we're supposed to do. Um, there are some people who interpret this passage so um, abusively that they would say it would be a sin to go to see doctors and that you should not see doctors but just go and have faith and go to your priest or your pastor or elders and that's enough. Uh, there are some who would go to that extreme. That is not, that is, that is not an interpretation that this te text would allow, and we would not recommend anyone to think that way. Uh, if anything, we know that one of the, one of the gospel writers uh, was a doctor, a physical doctor. Um, and uh, there is nothing indicated that somehow going to a physical doctor for physical healing uh, was to be rebuked or somehow, somehow shunned. So we want to make sure you don't take that interpretation from this passage. Oil was used in many other ways in the Old Testament. Um, it was um, used also for comfort. Um, it was used as a symbol of blessing. It was used as a symbol of sanctification or setting something apart for the uses of God. Or it was used as a symbol of dedication. Um, most often, oil was used when someone was anointed either as a priest or as a king or for some special 
purpose set apart for God. Um, now, it's hard to, um, to know uh, which of these is here. There's also another background that is very interesting to consider, the symbolic use of oil in the Old Testament. Um, in particular, um, in, the, um, in Isaiah chapter 61, we have one of the greatest promises of the Messianic age. And one of those promise, and, and the, among the promises, I'm going to read Isaiah 61, verses 1, 2, and 3. Um, and listen to, the, to where oil shows up and what kind of, what is it supposed to do? We have Isaiah 61. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. You hear the word anointing? He has set me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and, to the, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, the proclaim, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. So many of these pictures fit with what James has been doing in the entire letter. That actually some commentators think that actually James could be referring here to the symbolism of the oil of gladness. The oil that the gladness that comes when God will bring his messianic age, the, the age of his anointed one, when he will execute and carry out the promises of his reign, Promises of restoration, promises of bringing, of healing the sick, promises of, of opening the eyes of the blind, promises of restoring the spirit of the faint. It is not coincidental that when Jesus is in Capernaum and he begins preaching, he visits a synagogue and the text allotted to him that day was a text from Isaiah 61. And he begins reading these words, as I have just read them to you. And he closes a scroll and then tells the audience who was listening, what will this preacher say from these words that have been read before many times? What will this one, what will the son of the, of, of the carpenter, Joseph, say from, these, passages, from this, these verses? And he opens his mouth and he says, today these words have been fulfilled in your hearing. The messianic age is the messianic of restoration. The, the age when the anointed one of God has come upon the earth and is bringing the good news of God's restoring spirit. And that spirit first and foremost deals with our sins, with our spiritual needs, but it doesn't just stop there. It also affects our bodily effects as well. That's why the, the miracles of Jesus were oftentimes connected first with, with the proclamation of the good news of the gospel. And then Jesus would do the miracles to show that the kingdom of God has come among them and the anointed one is there among them. Oh, friends, do you realize the very name, the Messiah, means the anointed one because he's the one who brings the good news of God's anointing spirit to restore his people. Oh, friends, on the background of all that, when Jesus left the earth, he gave promises to his people. And, and, and 
And one of the promises that were given, actually not by Jesus, but through the Spirit um, in the book of Ephesians, is that, that Jesus went up on high and Jesus gave gifts to the church. And one of those gifts have been teachers and pastors. And, and God has entrusted the shepherds of the church to represent the people of God and to care for the people of God and to watch over them and to represent the, the blessings of God through the spoken word, through the teaching of the word. And yet, it may be that it may, it's not just limited to teaching wor- the, 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 the taught word, but it's also through the prayer of these elders that they pray on behalf of the church and on behalf of Christ and invoking the authority of Christ that Christ has given to the church and to the elders of the church to actually invoke his authority to bring a blessing of healing over someone who's sick. That's why, dear friends, when we look at the practice of why should a person, a sick person, call the elders of the church to anoint with oil in the name of the Lord. We want to make sure people understand it's not the anointing. It's not the oil itself that has the magical power. It's not even the elders themselves that have the magical power. Or somehow there's a, a, an automatic gift of healing in the office of elders. It's rather that the elders representing the church, speaking in the name of the, of the church, because Christ has delegated his authority, the authority of the kingdom to the church. Now the elders of the church speak on the authority of that name. That's why they're called to pray, a special prayer of faith over the person who is sick. And to, make, to, make, to give a visible symbol of that anointing that's available through the power of the kingdom of God, it is totally permissible and appropriate for the elders to use oil, nothing medicinal, just a, the symbol of oil, to show that that person is now set apart sanctified, set apart for the special care of God. It's set apart for the prayers of God's people. And it's set apart for the promise that God has made that He will restore all things. And that promise is a promise of joy, is an oil of gladness. And whether or not the Lord restores in that moment or restores physically in one's lifetime, we know for sure that the Lord will restore effectively and certainly when his kingdom will be fully manifested. And in that sense, someone in sickness, when we come to him and we anoint them with oil, it will be an oil of gladness. It will be an oil of promising the gladness that God has made known through the Messiah. And whether that, prom- that, that restoration will happen in this lifetime or not, we are certain it will happen. Well, friends, that's the comfort that a sick person can have. Whether or not they will be healed, they have this promise, the, the, the joy of the final um, restoration that God has promised. So friends, whether we go through times of sickness, trials, difficulties, or, tri- or times of cheerfulness, we are called to redirect our attention to the Lord. So friends, why should you call? If you're sick. And friends, I'm, let me be clear here. If you have allergies, that's not the kind of sickness. <laughs> not that I won't come to see you, I will come to see you. 
but we're not talking about that kind of sickness. Because in Texas, you would need to hire 100 pastors to do the job for every one of you. But, um, but if you're sick, why should you call the elders to come and anoint you with oil? And make that request known that way. Um, so that the elders of the church could pray over you and through the visible sign of, of anointing with the oil to declare to you, to God, to the church that we are setting you apart for the purpose of prayer and for the purpose of God's special care through the sickness. That would be number one. The second reason why we would do it is to deliver to you this oil of gladness as a promise of the messianic age. That we can embrace. So that no matter what happens, you can go through your trials with joy. And isn't this the way James started this letter in James 1-2? Consider it, my brothers, joy when you go through various trials. We want the oil of gladness to be part of our lives. The three points we looked at this morning. Christians belong to local churches. Christians in sickness should call their elders. And the elders of the church are called to pray over the sick person and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord as a symbol of setting them aside for God's special care and a symbol of the joy God promises when he will restore all things. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are a God who promises to be with us even in times of sickness. Father, thank you that you are a God who provides for your people not only individual comfort and personal comfort, but you provide the comfort and the encouragement of the congregation. And the service we do to one another when we are going through times of difficulties, Father, thank you for that blessing of serving one another and caring for one another, praying for one another. But Father, we also praise you for the, the care and the service you have given to each member of your church through the ministry of elders, so that these elders on behalf of the church and on behalf of Christ may administer words of comfort, of prayer of faith, an oil of, of gladness, so that your people, whatever happens to us, your people can go through difficulties with joyfulness, a joyfulness that this world cannot explain, a joyfulness that has no source in our earthly humanly emotions, a joyfulness that has its source in you, in the promises that you've made us. Oh God, we pray that we would be agents of your kingdom until Christ returns. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.